This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I want to talk about small communities can be very connected and so can short stories. Melissa Manning has done this most skillfully in Smokehouse. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you, Jen. It's delightful to be here. Oh, Where have you set these linked short stories? The stories are set in southern Tasmania um, in an area called the Don Tricasto Channel, which is about half an hour south of Hobart. There's a map at the front of the book, and if you've never been down that way, Kettering and Bruny Island, they are just spectacular places. Smokehouse 1, the title of the first chapter of the book, at the beginning, and Smokehouse 2, the last story, are like bookends, firstly introducing the characters and then reintroducing them 15 years later. Who is Nora when we first meet her? Nora is a woman who has a life that feels mapped out for her. She has relatively young children, uh, two girls, Trudy and Lara. She's in a relationship with Tom, her husband, that I I suppose from the outside would look like it's a successful relationship. And it's something I think that I think Tom would describe it as such. But from Nora's perspective, Mm. she's feeling a little... um, She's not in control of her own life. They're doing the the tree change. They've come from Hobart Mm -hmm. down to Kettering. Uh, But the foundations of the marriage weren't strong. And this is a quote. Without all the supports of their life in town, this new life of theirs was really only a new life of Tom's. So what does she mean when she says she wants a new identity too? I think there's something interesting that happens um, to women in particular when they have children. And I think what happens is that their identity is bled into the family and you can start to lose a sense of who you actually are as an individual and I think that's what Nora's craving. Mm. Well, they're building this mud brick cottage and Wall comes to build the fireplace. And further into the book, there's a short story called Stone. And how did Walt escape across the Polish border? Yeah, quite an interesting, an interesting way. Um, he, as a small child, he was put in a suitcase and carried across the border to um, be reunited with his parents on on the other side. So um, he's come from a very traumatized mm. beginning. He he has a problem connecting with people, but he talks about the kid and the girls. Yes, he's got a real affinity for the animals, um, for, for his chickens and, and his goats. And I think he connects, as some people do, more readily with the animals in, in their lives than with people. Now, it's Ollie who has the smokehouse down the hill from Nora and Tom's. Further on is a separate story. We learn how Ollie gained these smokehouse skills. And this story is called Leaven. I thought this was a very clever play on words because his mother is distraught that his father leaving and his mother takes out her frustration by pounding dough and making bread, leaving. <laughs> yes, yeah. Look, I, I think, you know, throughout all of the stories and, and that one in particular, food is quite critical and, and the care and sense of connection with or sense the sensory connections that come from from food and the importance of it in our lives you know for Ollie 
the bread making and then and then the smoking are really critical to the person that he is. But who no, he he smokes salmon, which he goes and fishes for, but he also smokes wallaby and uh, possums. So who taught him how to skin these animals? Ah, yes. So he learns that from from a woman who lives down at Cockle Creek, um, who lives alone and has lived alone down there for a long time. And she's very connected to to the landscape and is quite self-sufficient. Mm. And um, and Agnes teaches him how to do how to do the skinning. <laughs> Interesting character, <laughs> as a lot of these are. Now back to Nora. She wants to get a view of the bay. So Ollie comes up to help Tom cut down the trees. Ollie appears to tell the future when he says, and this is a quote, sometimes to have the thing you want, you must take something away. Now this is a small community and Sally tells Nora that the whole community knows that Nora is having an affair with Ollie. So what did Nora have to give away to be with him? She had to give away the life that she'd built with Tom. Um, And I'm interested in perceptions of that when it comes to a woman leaving children because I think that it's there's a much greater acceptance for a man to leave his children but for a woman to leave her children there's there's very deep judgment and i'm not sure i'm not really sure why we should draw those gendered distinctions i mean ultimately it was never nora's intention to to leave her children permanently but she she did what she needed to do to survive yeah it's a lovely story about how ollie wins these girls over One of the daughters, Lara, nearly drowns in the dam. And this incident links with another of the stories which appears not to have any relevance to this community. And it's the story of Nao. Why is she in this community? Well, Nao's come to the community somewhat unexpectedly. She was an exchange student and because of a catastrophic event in her home country, trying not to give too many spoilers, she, she winds up there on a more permanent basis. And so she has um, a quite deep-seated fear of the water as a a consequence of um, the catastrophic event that's occurred and and impacted her family, whereas others in in the story are very much connected to water. And as you mentioned before, you know, it's quite important to Nora to have that, the view of the bay. Mm. Now, now is is Japanese, of course, and uh, I think we all know about those cartoons. So... This is a beautiful description of just a paragraph from Smokehouse by Melissa Manning. When the night was too heavy for sleep, she would sit on the floor in her room and draw. She drew herself like a manga character, but she had to be careful not to draw her eyes too large because they always held pools of water. If she made them too big, she might fall into herself and drown. Mm. Yeah, so there's this whole feeling, this, this grief. Now, it's her adoptive mum who's died and she has this grief. And there's another story, Chainsaw, that also has grief in it. What happened in Chainsaw? Chainsaw is a story of when, when things really go wrong mm. for a family, uh, an otherwise happy and quite cohesive family. And you know, what I was trying to explore in that story is really that this can happen to anyone. Hannah falls into... Let's have that character, that, that uh, paragraph about sure. Hannah, because I think Melissa Manning's written this so well. This is a, 
page 128, yes. This is a teenage girl. She's getting older. We need to give her some leeway. Lynn reasoned, but Rob shook his head. No, Lynn. She needs to know who's the boss. By the end of year eight, Hannah was a shapeshifter, and they never knew which girl they would get. Compliant, almost serene, then bare-toothed, spittled shrieking. The vitriol, when it came, was incomprehensible, and at the height of those episodes, Rob would threaten to kick Hannah out as Lynn pleaded with both of them to stop. Yes, difficult daughter, and there was grief there. Look, I thought the mother showing her grief, you know, cooking all the birthday cakes she'd cooked over the 21 years of Hannah's life was just fantastic. And the mother who said she wondered how her life might go now, that she no longer expected joy, no longer felt a right to its return. Another woman's perception you've given. In a quite different story, we have Gurge. He's, he's, he has different sadness for the death of his partner as well as the death of his mother. And I love the way that you spoke about him meeting Graham on a blind date. Quote, he arrived carrying the heavy weight of low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that partnership worked out beautifully. Harry is another character and he seems to be the connection in this small close community when Arlene's family's home on Bruny Island burnt down where did he suggest Arlene and her family live so he knows Tom and Nora and he is aware that Tom has moved away to Sydney for a time and that Tom's house the mud brick house which features and is built in in the first smokehouse story is vacant so he suggests that they might be able to move there. Many years later, it's the daughter of this group. Where does he suggest the daughter works? For Nora, <laughs> um, in the A-frame house which sits below the property and of the Mudbrick house. Yes. This story brings us back to Smokehouse 2 and the final chapter. Quote, Nora wished more fervently than anything for some semblance of predictability was exhausted by the impossibility of understanding the shifts from one moment to the next. She's talking about Ollie. What's happened to him? Yeah, it's really it's oh. sad. <laughs> it's really sad. I, I didn't set out to write it this way, but this is just, you know, stories evolve the way they decide to evolve. And um, very sadly for Ollie, he develops dementia. You have written about her feelings about it and, you know, his inconsistency and everything particularly well. Did you, have you researched this dementia or lived it live? Or <laughs> I haven't lived it. I know people who have. Um, I have family members who have, and I, I did quite a lot of research. Mm. What I'm really interested in is is showing that it's not, you know, it's not really a black and white response that you have to those kinds of um, adversities in your life. It's mm. not just, well, this is all sadness. There's sadness and light and there's resentment and there's anger. Another quote, Nora wished they could wind back to the beginning and start again. She would do it all the same. Only the ending would be different. And you think, oh, yes. Oh, well, you gave us characters that we cared about. Melissa Manning has created resilient characters who live in a small community of southern Tasmania in the link stories of Smokehouse. Thank you very much, Melissa. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you. And now it's David's turn.
Jacqueline Bublitz gives a voice to the victim of a murder in her debut novel, Before You Knew My Name. So, Jacqueline, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me from across the ditch. Alice Lee is murdered, but by making her the narrator of your story, you afford her a greater respect than if she'd just been a corpse discovered in a river. Was this your intent? It was. The way Alice's character in the story developed was a lovely kind of organic, uh, but it was always my intention to, to tell a story that centred the victim in some way. I didn't know from the start that I would have her tell the story of her life and death. Uh, but as soon as I brought her into the present in the story and let her tell her own story, it was pretty clear to me that um, this was the story not only she, but I wanted to tell. You've also got another character here, Ruby Jones, and she's the one who discovers Alice's body. But there are parallels between their two lives even before that moment. So I'd just like to read an extract. There is no name to be spoken, but I am recognised by each of the women present, clasped around their lifted hands, heavy on their hearts. I am their fears and their lucky escapes, their anger and their weariness. I am their caution and their yesterdays, the shadow version of themselves all those nights they have spent looking over shoulders or twining keys between fingers. A man speaks to the crowd, entreats his gender to do better, people clap cheer, but it is the silence of the women that binds up the candlelight, sends it skyward, a flare in search of every lost sister, so that when the man's passion is spent, it is the quiet rage of women that lingers, can be seen glittering from above, long after all the little fires have been extinguished and the mourners have moved on. So women are united in many ways. Yeah, this was not hard for me to imagine. Uh, there were so many, uh, this vigil that, you know, that you've, that the scene describes, we've seen it happen so many times, certainly in Melbourne, where, where I had, was living when I was writing the story, um, where people come together to express their grief. And, and quite often, I think these days also, that, that undercurrent of, of rage and frustration that these kind of crimes, these gender-based crimes are still happening. But it's this feeling that is communicated that's very important for the reader to understand. One of the big things with this book and the story was my girlfriends, my friends, like conversations that we'd had uh, with each other about, you know, issues with our own safety, um, a close call or a time we'd been uncomfortable or when we were concerned with um, the friend who always insisted on walking home when we'd like to see them in a, in a taxi or an Uber. Um, that kind of unfortunate unity we have when it comes to navigating our safety. Alice and Ruby are also linked through their respective experiences in relationships. Alice is 17 when she has a relationship with a teacher, Mr Jackson, and Mr. Ruby Jackson. is having an affair with Ash, who's engaged to be married. And I'm just wondering about how much agency these women have in their relationships. It's a really good question, and I wanted to play with that, and, and not necessarily um, 
answer it. Um, but with the relationships that both uh, Ruby and Alice have uh, towards the, the beginning of the story, um, it really is looking at well, what is consent? Can a 17-year-old who is maybe to some like really quite grown up, like it, it was that a love story between her and uh, this particular man, Mr. Jackson? Probably not, is, is, the, is um, you know, my opinion. And then with the relationship that Ruby has where this man is, is not available but makes himself somewhat available to her, is that a kind of abuse? Um, is certainly um, not good for her and he must know that and so yeah with both of those relationships I wanted to do actually two things one was with play with kind of those questions around consent and, and agency and power dynamics but I also wanted to set both Alice and Ruby up as somewhat flawed or real characters and I didn't want them to be either of them to be um, perfect characters I wanted them to be messy and, and make decisions that you know the reader will not approve of sometimes I think. What we have also introduced into this story is the death club in the novel now this isn't a group uh, with morbid fascination with death <laughs> they use it as a means of coming to terms with loss. Yeah, there it is a sort of more philosophical than anything else. This group, in 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 the novel, at first Ruby, who finds Alice's body, she recognises that she's carrying some kind of trauma from that event, and she visits a, a PTSD uh, group, thinking that you know she might be able to work through some of her experiences, and it's not it's not quite right for her. So what's happened to her, being the one to find the body. Uh, doesn't quite fit um, with the type of therapy, this group therapy that these people suffering from different kinds of trauma, you know, are, are looking for in this group setting. So she meets uh, a young woman, Lenny, an embalmer who runs yeah, what she calls a death club. It's a small group, but each person um, in the death club has had their own experience of death. They've become intimate with death in some way whether through their own near-death experience or losing somebody that they love and what they've found and this is certainly what I found in my life is that they have more questions than answers and might not ever actually get some of the answers that they're looking for but that there's comfort in asking the questions. You do actually interweave life and death You've got an excerpt there where you're looking at the numbers who die in the New York subway. So they're not separate entities. Life and death are all part and parcel. And it's Josh, one of the other characters, that actually has a near-death experience, which changes his life. So life and death are interwoven. They are. And you, you have Alice, who um, she, she learned early on um, at school when she was young that she was supposed to have 79.1 years allocated to her. That was the life expectancy of, of girls, I'm going to say 1996. I think that would be the math. That's when she was born. Um, and so she's uh, very conscious that life is finite. 
yeah, Ellis in particular is, is quite aware, I think, of mortality from the beginning and, and these conversations she has with Noah, who's the man that she lives with um, in New York around life and death and, and how perhaps they're, they're not quite so different from each other are um, explicitly explored later in the novel, whereas they're a bit more implicit for this young girl. Ruby holds the key to solving Alice's murder and this makes it an interesting sort of detective thriller, but it's not. Um, yeah. And there are clues in the story which we're not going to give away. But you have a lovely image with a camera that you use which shows how these two forces, like life and death, like Alice and Ruby, come together. And it's when you look through the viewfinder and bring the two images together into focus a very powerful image you've got there i'm so glad that um that resonated with you uh because that was hard that was a hard-earned metaphor um because i actually have, have no skill whatsoever um or don't really kind of understand how um photographers do the you know the extraordinary work that they do so from from a writerly perspective that um that really pleases me because it was a bit of work but yeah from the perspective of you know alice and ruby Technically, they never meet, but they are as close as two people can be by the, by the end of the novel through this extraordinary connection of Ruby being the one to, to discover Alice's body and that, that time she has with her before the police arrive. Um, or the you know, detectives and before it becomes a story, um, I always imagine it to be just the most intimate and, and obviously terrifying, but um, there's an intimacy to that 10 minutes that they had just the two of them together. But you also have Ruby experiencing or living through Alice's last moments in her imagination. I think imagination is a good word. It's up to the reader and I'm, I'm not going to tell them whether or not some of the things that Ruby experiences really happen or whether they are actually part of her des desire to, to know Alice and to, to understand what happened to her. Um, I certainly, as a writer, have, you know, my answers to that. Um, but if you want to want to experience uh, certain scenes as, yeah, as metaphors or as um, Ruby sort of taking over the narrative, that would be okay. Well, Jacqueline, it's an intriguing novel, not the least of which because Alice, the person who is killed, is narrating the story even after her death. We have those connections between Alice and Ruby and that whole discussion about life and death and the influence of one on the other. But the book is Before You Knew My Name, the author Jacqueline Bublitz, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Jacqueline, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, David. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.